Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're, You're listening, listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. And I'm Hannah Blackiston. Joining us to break down the week in media and marketing is Brittany Rigby. Hello. And Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. Later, I'll be talking to DDB's new global CEO, Marty O'Halloran, about... His plans for the global agency network. We have pockets of uh, amazing success uh, at DDB. The legacy of Bill Burnback. Research done well is the friend of creativity. Bringing the Australian agency culture abroad. I think understanding the cultural nuances is important, but also being really clear about what the formula is to create a great agency. But first, the week's topics. Dozens of jobs go at 10 and Nova. The end of the Coles catalogue. And did 10's bachelor gamble pay off? So this seems to be one of those weeks where everything happened on a Tuesday, or on this Tuesday in particular. Um, Hannah, you were lucky enough to be on the news desk that day, which made it a very busy day for you. So let's let's start, I guess we should start with the job cuts at Nova. So this is the radio network owned by Lachlan Murdoch, although it operates separately to News Corp. How bad was it? I would say it was pretty bad. The number that's been reported and which has been confirmed by uh, Nova CEO Cathy O'Connor is 70 roles, um, which is quite a sizable number, I think, because if you start actually thinking about how many people a business like Nova would employ, I think 70 is a pretty sizable percentage of that. It also isn't their first round of job cuts. They cut some jobs in December as well. That was reportedly only around 15 roles. But, you know, all up, you're pushing close to 100 roles that have gone in, say, the last six months. I think, like any other media company, obviously, we've been reporting on the SMI data and all the other data over the last couple of weeks, and it hasn't been good. Uh, Kathy, Nova CEO, said, They'd seen a revenue fall of around 25% across this year, so that's pretty painful. Um, And they're not expecting turnaround for at least 18 months at this point. So you can see why they've had to do it. But I think, yeah, as I said, 70 seems like quite a large number, especially to have to do all in one go. Look, and I suppose Nova is, I can think of maybe HG&E or an Australian radio network, but Nova's the other one, which is just very much exposed just to radio in that their main, I guess their main assets really are the Nova network and the smooth FM network in Sydney and, 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 and Melbourne. And, and, and Brit, it has been, you've been writing some of those SMI stories. It has been pretty bad for radio in particular, hasn't it? As Hannah was saying. Yeah, I mean, we've discussed before that people aren't in the car and don't have that kind of automated, built-in response of the radio comes on when you get in the car and that's kind of your listening pocket for the day. The figure of 25% as a revenue fall is interesting and I wonder how that works out kind of month on month and year on year because at first glance, it's like, well, does that mean that they weren't receiving JobKeeper? And in that case, is that why the redundancy figures are so high? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think that 25% is spread across the year, which when we've seen other companies do that, if you're including January and February, your number isn't going to look as bad as if you're just including from, say, April onwards. Um 
Nova have said that their goal coming out of this is to reduce their overall costs by 9%, which this redundancy is obviously a big part of that. Um, I think what's really interesting here, I've spent a lot of time over the last couple of weeks speaking to radio bosses because ratings are about to return or have already started and are about to be reported on. And there's, from what I can gather, listeners haven't gone away just because they're not traveling to work or they're not, you know, in their cars or whatever. It just means there's kind of been a bit of a shift in when you're listening. You know, you're possibly listening for longer or you're possibly listening later than you would have done usually if you're getting up for work. Um, But I think we're seeing the same thing here as we've seen at TV, we've seen in digital where the audiences might still be there and the audiences might still be at the same level. But it doesn't mean advertisers either A, have the money to spend or B, have the confidence to spend that money. Yeah, look, it would be really interesting, wouldn't it, to, and we'll, in the radio ratings, we'll certainly, once you sort of drill to that second page that they they usually put out later, I guess we'll get a bit of a sense of time spent listening. So that will be quite interesting for radio. And I, 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 it's been interesting, actually, I I saw a a post on Facebook a few weeks back from Adam Boland, who used to be uh, back in the day sort of the brains behind um, a Sunrise in the Morning show, and then he went over and did the same thing for 10 for a while, making the point that when people are working from home, they're probably watching TV for longer. And he was a bit surprised that um, the three networks are still being quite repetitive in what they do in their in their morning content. And by the three networks, I mean 7, 9 and the ABC this time around. And I found that I've noticed, particularly when they've got a big showbiz guest on, for instance, News Breakfast, you'll sometimes actually see the same interview played out twice on the same morning. And of course, on a normal day, you're rushing out the door, but when you're not and you're watching for longer, then uh, I, I wonder if um, the breakfast shows have actually quite caught up with uh, viewing and viewer rhythms just yet. Yeah, I think um, what's really, what radio has kind of said is that they've had taken this chance to move some things around I think um, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago when we had Triple M boss Mike Fitzpatrick on he said they'd actually changed their hours of their breakfast shows and kind of moved them back slightly but that's probably quite easy to do in radio because it's a lot simpler of a medium than TV is. You know, things are a lot more flexible, especially if they're working with a pared down staff, which they probably are at the moment. And I wonder if you're right, TV is kind of a bit of a slower moving beast and therefore it's been a lot harder to move. But I think um, I saw some really interesting data from Fetch a couple of weeks ago, which said that across the board, we're watching TV or Australians are watching TV for more than an hour extra every day than we were pre-COVID. And yeah, I I don't know if A, I've seen that kind of reported enough by the free-to-air networks. And also, if you're right, if they've kind of taken that chance to capitalize on it, or if, I mean, I'm sure they've got lots of other things on their mind, but you would think now might be a bit of an opportunity for that. And look, and um, the other, one of the other stories you wrote on Tuesday was um, the impact of TENS cuts I suspect because there were lots of uh, on-camera talent as well, but I don't know. I don't know why it was, but I found Tuesday's announcements just—we've had worse days in the last few months, but Tuesday's just felt so depressing. It's just like 
oh, I thought maybe we got through the worst and here we go again. I am I am I alone in that? It just I I don't know why it felt particularly so so bad to me on Tuesday. No, I completely agree, and that's actually how I was going to open this. I felt like this these 10 cuts on Tuesday really hit me in a way that I kind of thought I was beyond at this point, having written a number of cut stories by now. Um, yeah, this got leaked all across the industry at about the same time. Um, basically 10 have decided to put in massive cuts across its news and operation teams, which as you touched on has actually resulted in some on talent cuts. The biggest names being Carrie Ann Kennelly, uh, Natasha Belling, and Tim Bailey, the weatherman, who they have tried to cut before way back in the early 2000s, and it didn't go very well for them. But unfortunately, this time he is gone. Um, it's mostly around them centralizing their news. So Sydney and Melbourne are going to be the only two areas that they produce their news out of. So Sydney will do Brisbane and Perth as well as Sydney, and Melbourne will take on Adelaide, which means a number of behind-the-scenes roles cut. It also means local news readers cut. Um, and then the weather will all be done out of one central location, so there'll only be one weather reader. And do we know, will the local news readers have to move to Sydney or Melbourne then if they want to keep their jobs? Uh, they've all been cut, so they won't have to move to Sydney or Melbourne. So it'll be um, a completely new face reading those bulletins as well to those audiences. So Sandra Sully and Matt Burke, who currently do Sydney, will also do Brisbane. Um, Jennifer Kate Keat um, and Stephen Quartermain, who currently do Melbourne, will also do Adelaide. The only so they won't two- even be live then in that case because yeah, they obviously I'd- can't read two bulletins at once. I hadn't even realised that. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. The- <laughs> it's just so wild to me. I think particularly because. Monica Coz was one of the cuts and she'd only just been picked up in December um, after seven cancelled today, tonight. And I can remember when 10 picked her up and there was all, there was quite a big response online that I wasn't necessarily expecting where people were delighted that she'd found another role and really happy for her. And she was going to be reading in Perth on 10 and she was a familiar face. And now they've not only decided to cut her, but they haven't actually announced who's going to read the Perth news. So they might bring somebody new in to do that but I don't know is that just a cost-cutting measure what does how does that really even make sense and to me that says this hasn't been on the cards for very long and this is probably quite a knee-jerk reaction from 10 or from its parent company Viacom CBS at least. I did see one comment in the comment thread on Mumbrella of someone making the point this is what seems to happen with 10 there's been a cycle over the years they they back away from news and then they sort of gear up again and I yeah you know I sort of remember sort of early in Mumbrella's life you know at the point at which (laughs) I've always felt that the sort of the the downfall of 10 was when they had a massive hit with MasterChef and they stopped being the plucky little, you know, sort of, you know, the cheeky little underdog and started thinking they could be a contender. And all of a sudden they were extending their news bulletin and they were hiring George Negus and doing all of this other stuff to be a kind of competitor. And then they were cancelling the news again and then they brought it back. And now it's, it's, it's obviously sort of going, going away again. So it does feel like there's, Obviously, one of the secrets to news is just keep doing it year in, year out, which has been the success of seven news and nine news. But um, there is a cycle with 10, isn't there? There is. And of course, that, you know, 
comes in under their morning show as well. They've tried and tried again to do a morning show, Studio 10. They keep denying they're going to move it forward and make it more of a morning show format. But they've also said in these cuts that there's more there's more to come when it comes to Studio 10, which to me would suggest that upfronts there's going to be a bit of an announcement there. If that does turn into Studio 10 becoming a morning format, you've got to ask yourself how many times they're going to throw something at this before just accepting that viewers' habits aren't changing and that, as you said, they'd be better off doing something different instead of trying to kind of replicate what everyone else is doing. So just to clarify, and I'm going to bring Brit in in a moment when now we talk about Studio 10. One of the things you're suspecting, and I know this is the question I've asked a lot over the years, is is are they actually maybe, despite cutting some of the costs, thinking of increasing the hours that Studio Tens on air, and maybe maybe actually having it compete in breakfast time as well is 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 what you're hinting at there. To me, to say that you're cutting a bunch of roles from a show, but that there will be something new and exciting on the horizon surrounding that show when it's a show like studio 10 and when you're a network like 10 and you don't have a morning show that is the only logical connection but I also know I think as early as earlier this year 10 have said no we're not going to play in that morning slot so I could be completely wrong but I will not be surprised if come October we see studio 10 moving forward and perhaps some new faces attached to it well at least we have both a recording of you saying it and (laughs) (laughs) and even more importantly a harp flashback sound effect so we've got everything we need to uh check in on that now um uh, i i must admit i thought that kerry ann canley gave an absolute master class in how to handle bad news in how she addressed it on air the next morning yeah well look i think the only right strategy is to kind of be classy and graceful particularly in this context. I mean, we're not just talking about Carrie ann Cannelly getting the boot. We're not just talking about Studio 10, you know, high-paid, high-profile presenters getting the boot. As Hannah mentioned, there's kind of, you know, behind-the-scenes staff and newsreaders across the network impacted. So I think both her and Joe Hildebrand were actually really quite tasteful and you know, empathetic in recognising that, you know, this is a bigger issue and a bigger problem than just them because, of course, it would seem like Joe Hildebrand is also leaving the show, although, you know, he's, he keeps saying that he's still in talks with Ten and that his future is unclear, but that, that definitely looks to be where that's going. So, yeah, I mean, Kerri-Ann Kennelly, one of the quotes that I liked of hers from the next morning was, and again, you know, very, I'm sure the 10 executives w- would be very pleased with this, is she said, let's face it, we've got to get down to logic here. It is what it is. It's not the first time, unfortunately. Companies do these sorts of cuts to make the business better, which in the long run saves a lot more jobs. And I do not say it lightly. I'm very, very sad because I will miss you guys and miss the audience, miss the feedback. But that said, it is what it is. You just have to suck it up, move on. So, yeah, she was quite, you know, pulled together and stoic and, yeah, tasteful. And it's interesting as well because in terms of, and again, I don't know obviously how much Carrie ann Kennelly's salary is worth versus Sarah Harris's versus the other Studio 10 presenters, maybe it was more of a financial decision rather than anything else in terms of choosing which presenters 
to put on the shopping block. But her and Joe Hildebrand are definitely the most controversial on that panel, are definitely the most divisive. There are, you know, stalwart fans of Studio 10 who only watch it because of Joe Hildebrand, but at the same time there are people who will refuse to watch it because of Joe Hildebrand and then Carrie Ann Cannelly. She's been there for almost two years now. So that did interest me as well, that we're not talking about kind of Sarah Harris and Angela Bishop here. We're specifically talking about those two. So, yeah, intriguing. Yeah, definitely intriguing. And it kind of surprised me a little bit as well. I think that they, that 10 kind of allowed them that platform the next morning to be so vocal. But I do think it was, they, as you said, they were all very classy in the way that they handled it. And I think at a time like this, you're not really allowed to jump up on your soapbox and complain about losing a job, especially when you're losing a very well-paid job, I imagine. What really struck me is perhaps one of the worst things about this cut is that we won't know the outcome of it for quite a while because 10 have opened a redundancy kind of round across their news and ops teams and are asking for people to put their hands up. So I think this will be like the ABC where we're only recently kind of getting the actual figures behind it. But yeah, I think it's safe to say that either way, you wonder how much a network can have a commitment to news if we're seeing these sorts of massive cuts across that entire division. Look, and I suppose it's also worth making the point that Joe Hildebrand has a lot to fall back on. You know, he was, um, he, you know, he was, he, he was a, a, a journalist and an editor at a news called full time and TV was his sort of part-time gig that just gradually became more full-time. And he was, you know, he was very good at that. He was very good at writing his column. I, I remember years ago, I used to do a bit more on uh, the morning show on Channel 7. I used to sort of pundit on that. And I just used to hate it when he was the other panellist because he's always just 10% funnier, 20% funnier, um, just slightly faster, slightly more with it. And it, it's just, you know, you, you you there are just certain people who are actually very good at television. And even before it was his full-time job, he was, you know, he was he was one of those people who you'd always think, well, I'm I'm just going to look a bit plodding and slow today then. So um so yeah, look, it always made sense to me when he did end up with that as his main role. So are we saying we shouldn't look out for you replacing Joe Hildebrand in Studio <laughs> 10? <laughs> now with 20% more ploddingness. <laughs> And I think I might be kind to myself when I say only 20%. Um, look, and while we're talking about 10, it's also worth um, acknowledging the news that came through on Thursday morning, uh, Australian time, which um, I guess because 10 hasn't been owned for that long by um, uh, CBS, it's maybe had less of the ructions. But Sumner Redston, the, the sort of founder and owner of CBS Viacom for years and years and years, um, uh passed away Hannah yeah he did um he was 97 um and he and his family or he used his family's money to kind of build the empire that became well that is now includes CBS and Viacom yeah I think you make a really interesting point that this hasn't necessarily kind of hit Australia the way it maybe would have if it was someone who would run their entire career here. I think it's quite interesting how little we oh, think. Oh, for one horrible moment, I thought we were going to reel off a bunch of um, uh, of media owners and what it would be like if they died. So I'm glad <laughs> you didn't name names. Yeah, but yeah, this is the way I'm going to launch my media owner death pool. Speaking of um, classy and tasteful. 
<laughs> I'm up for your job, Kerry. Um, I think, yeah, it's quite interesting how little we think of 10 as, or I, you know, this might just be me personally, but I still don't really necessarily think of 10 as being owned by somebody else. And I think even though if this year has really shown us anything, it's that they very much have an external interest um, at this point. But yeah, there's been some really interesting kind of pieces on um, Sumner and kind of his career to date. As I always love these like pieces on people who kind of were working in the media in the heyday of media when there was a lot of money and a lot of kind of ballsiness and yeah, I would encourage people to go out and read some of them because there are some really fun little anecdotes floating around now. Well, Zoe, um, while we are talking money and numbers and stuff, there is at least one bright spot, um, which is um, Thursday saw uh, an arrow, the holding group, uh, grow its revenues and profits. Yeah, so Anero, which is the holding company that owns creative agency BMF, uh, PR agencies Hotwire and Frank, research agency Orchard, released their financial results uh, actually a couple of hours before we were recording this podcast. And uh, they showed that their revenue was up by 4.9% to $135.8 million. And their profits are up 18% to $24 million. It's the first financial results from the new CEO, Brent Scrimshaw, who joined fairly recently after Matthew Melhish stepped down. Um, and he sort of responded to the results in a way that was thanking thanking the group for their work, acknowledging he hadn't been there for very long, but looking forward to what this means for the future. Um, Enero Chair and Sherry sort of credited uh, the good results in comparison to a lot of what we've seen in the market uh, due to COVID-19 to the group's sort of exposure to clients in the healthcare, technology and consumer staples sectors um, and also the flexibility that their agencies have uh, brought in and created since the pandemic began. And that's, I think, fairly consistent with sort of what we've seen from agencies, you know, the performance has definitely depended on the client mix. And yeah, I think the the market definitely received the news well. Uh, the share price went up nearly 20% uh, on Thursday afternoon and their market capitalization is now $145 million, which Tim, you pointed out, is getting close to WPPAUNZ. Yes, which is a um, good moment to bring Brittany in because I think, Britt, you'll probably be writing WPP's results next week. So I think there's a very good chance that we go because they've already dropped some hints, that we'll see an arrow deliver a higher profit number because an arrow of obviously today, you know, today as we're recording this, delivered 24 million and uh, profit. And the hint is that WPP won't do that. I have heard, so the number that came out of WPP earlier that we kind of focused on quite a bit was this forecast of an EBIT between break-even and a loss of $10 million. They've now revised that to be in the green between 10 and $14 million. So, yeah, Thursday next week will definitely be one to keep an eye out on. And talk about it on the podcast, no doubt. I look forward to it. Next, no more catalogues from Coles. 
We hit a marketing milestone this week, Cole's printed catalogues, which before the pandemic used to go into pretty much every letterbox in the country and not coming back. Joining me to talk about the decision and the launch of the digital content marketing alternative, Coles & Co, is Chief Marketing Officer Lisa Ronson. Now, Lisa, the end of catalogues, they've been a part of Australian life for decades. Now, obviously, COVID has accelerated societal change, and this is another one of those things. I'm sure it will save you some money too. But I suppose my first thought was it's a very competitive sector. So I'm wondering, are you nervous that Woolworths might carry on going with catalogues when the pandemic is over and give them some sort of advantage over you? This is more about um, catering to our customers, you know, increasingly searching for information and inspiration online rather than a a one-size-fits-all paper catalogue. So what we've been finding is that um, over the last number of years, customers have been increasingly turning to digital, not only to search for um, inspiration in the supermarket and grocery category, but across most of the things that they, they buy. So this is really a part of trying to be more helpful and personalised to the vast majority of Australians rather than a, a one-size-fits-all approach in the letterbox. We'll come to Coles & Co in a second. Um, obviously, you're, you're, a, you're, you know, you're a marketer, so you'll be, you'll be very evidence-based. Um, I'm curious, um, were, were catalogues effective or were they one of those things which you sort of inherited and you know you'd sort of I I guess scratch your head and ask yourself whether it was worth what you were spending on them and I I'm also wondering just about that environmental impact you know and your your stats the announcement 200 billion pages over the last 20 years obviously you took a bit of a lead when it came to um uh getting away of disposable uh carrier bags so presumably you were hearing a similar environmental message. So so I'm wondering about those both of those factors, the effectiveness factor and the environmental impact. Well, we I mean we're constantly looking at at both of those aspects. Um, you know, from an environmental point of view, we want to be Australia's most sustainable supermarket. And uh, we're constantly looking at the ways that our customers want to engage with us so that we can serve them up the content that they're specifically looking for. And if we, as you know, if we can deliver the right message to the right customer at the right time, that's going to be um, the most efficient way to communicate with our customers. So, yeah, you're absolutely right, Tim. It was a a function of both of those things. And then on top of that, um, the digital adoption that we've seen globally and, and nationally over the last number of years. Well, let's talk about Coles Co. So this is your biggest push yet into digital content marketing. Now, the announcement mentions ambitions like daily content, including recipes. So maybe just talk through about how big you see this platform getting. Well, we have great aspirations for this platform because we know things like What's for Dinner, which is a platform that we launched um, just on a year ago now, and we pivoted that to What's for Dinner Live um, through COVID. Customers are increasingly looking to solve that um, anxiety issue that they have at sort of three 
after three o'clock in the afternoon about, oh, what am I going to cook for dinner? And I want to do something different. And I want to um, provide a great meal for good value to my family or for my friends or for myself. And so we're going to make sure that we've got daily inspiration, daily specials, um, tips and tricks and hacks from, you know, our big chef and cook community that, um, that we deal with on a day-to-day basis that our customers are absolutely loving hearing from and hearing their favourite recipes and how they um, find their own inspiration and, and their own um, shortcuts and inspiration. So we're looking to really provide that rich content that we know Australians are increasingly looking for, as well as informative content around if you're a, a vegetarian or gluten-free. Um, we've got so many great products that cater to so many different um food trends and preferences now so that will be constantly updated on Coles and Co as we launch new products and um and range new products so yeah it's 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 going to we have great aspirations for the channel and how will you create that content will it be in-house or will you use some of your agency partners to to build it combination of both so we've got um a lot of content that we develop in-house because we have uh, chefs that develop recipes in the Coles kitchens downstairs of our, our building. So we'll lean on our chefs there. Uh, people like our ambassador Curtis Stone and a lot of the other ambassadors, uh, ex-MasterChef contestants, um, current MasterChef contestants, and then we'll look to our agencies to develop content and we'll have um, some people helping us curate that content as well. Now, I know that you're a strong partner of big publishers including News Corp mm-hmm. this feels like it could also be a little bit competitive for some of their food titles do you do you think you will be competing with the food publishers for audience not really because we've got a big partnership with Taste and we've had that partnership for a number of years so we actually work together to um, reach a broader audience and uh, we share content between us as well so it's really in partnership with them to service a greater number of Australian tastes and preferences. And um, just going back to where I started, I I realised you're so good at this PR game. I do. I I I I'm not sure I got a full answer to my first question. So, um, which I didn't even notice at the time. But uh, I, you're, you know, as I say, you're in a competitive environment, and I'm sure you you prepare for every eventuality and think about every eventuality. So, so I'm wondering how you think Woolworths will respond to this initiative. Tim, I honestly, I, I don't know. I couldn't uh, second guess what um, uh, Woolies are going to do or my um, my fellow CMO, Andrew Hicks, so I couldn't possibly speak on his behalf. Lisa, thank you very much for your time. Next, did Ten's bachelor strategy pay off? Mumbrella's Publish Awards will recognise the best work in consumer, business-to-business and custom publishing from businesses of all sizes, with 32 categories up for grabs, spanning digital print, sales, journalism, marketing and more. This is your chance to celebrate your team's big wins in front of the entire Australian publishing industry. And it will be the entire industry because we're doing it online. Final entries close next Friday. August 21st. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash publish awards for more information. On to television then. So most of the action in the ratings this week seem to be happening over at 10. Um, 
Hannah, we saw the uh, last episode of Bachelor in Paradise on Sunday night, then straight into the new season of The Bachelor on Wednesday night without that usual uh, master chef being the the rose between two thorns to pick completely the wrong analogy. Um, so unusual to be almost back to back. How did it go? Yeah, it is unusual. Um, so Batchy in Paradise finished up to 480,000 Metro viewers, which... Now, I is- didn't see it, but maybe should I warn people spoilers for the question I'm about to ask them. Um, did everybody have a happy ending? Oh, absolutely nobody had a happy ending. The entire season was a sham. But anyway, it's fine. We're all we're all coming to terms with that, Tim. <laughs> um it wasn't a fantastic result for it, I will say, but it kind of and it's a fall from every other season. But the season itself had not been performing that fantastically. So, you know, it wasn't too bad a result in consideration of that. Batchy in Paradise is always the worst performer of the three. Um, and I think similar to Nine's Love Island, it's one of those shows that lives its best life on catch-up TV. So these probably aren't the definitive results. Um, and then we <laughs> then we had a bit of an interesting turn because before we could go into Bachelor, which launched on Wednesday, we had the little uh, teaser in the middle there of The Masked Singer. The Masked Singer, so Batchy in Paradise finished on Sunday. Masked Singer came in on Monday um, and then... As I said, Batchy came in on Wednesday. The Masked Singer had what was for me quite a shocking result, I think. It dropped 30% from last year, brought in uh, 823,000 Metro viewers. Yeah, 823,000 Metro viewers. It was a questionable choice for 10 because they put it up against Ninja, um, Nine's Australian Ninja Warrior, which had its finale. and I think, you know, everyone will remember last year, The Masked Singer was a real runaway success for 10. It kind of had a really short, snappy season. It kept up really good results the whole way through. This year, it did do better on its second night, but I think it was a tough beginning. Ninja Warrior pulled just over a million with its uh, finale. So, yeah, tough, tough audience. Then in on Wednesday... The Bachelor, 681,000 Metro viewers, which is its lowest premiere to date, minus season one, which interestingly was slightly lower. So it did better in its, say, fifth, sixth season. We're now in the eighth season. Um, I don't think that's too bad a result, though. It's eight seasons of a show. We, As you said, we've just come straight off the back of another Bachelor franchise, which didn't do very well. Mars Singer didn't exactly perform as a runaway success so I don't know that 10 will be too unhappy with that it might be worth noting that not much else on was on a Wednesday night so it didn't go up against anything too difficult but I think it'll be interesting to see if it can kind of maintain that across the season well Zoe what do you think of this idea of going almost back to back with the Bachelor franchise rather than giving viewers a little bit of an opportunity to miss it I can understand the reasoning in one respect, and that is separating like Bachelor in Paradise and The Bachelor with MasterChef. MasterChef gets a fairly different audience of people than like The Bachelor franchises do. So I can understand how they would hope that Bachelor in Paradise's audience would run onto The Bachelor, which does traditionally get high numbers in Bachelor in Paradise. But 
10 did make a last minute switch to put MasterChef to air earlier this year and then put Bachelor in Paradise, which was filmed in November 2019 on, you know, a couple months ago. And I looking and MasterChef performed so well. I mean, it performed beyond anyone's expectations, especially the first episode. I remember we were all very shocked with how high it rated. Uh, but looking at the way that Ten's shows are performing now, Bachelor in Paradise, Mars Singer was down, and I'm sure they would have expected that to perform, you know, m- more like MasterChef numbers. I just wonder if, in the end, the decision to switch MasterChef and Bachelor in Paradise was the smartest one. I kind of wonder if there was, it would have been a very similar situation the other way anyway I do think they missed a trick by sitting on paradise for so long just because as Zoe mentioned it was filmed in November last year by the time it went to air the Daily Mail had destroyed any possible sense of mystery around the show but I also don't know if that's what people really watch it for I think it's a bit more you know you're just watching it for the drama I think I think MasterChef would have performed really well whether it ran when it did or whether it ran later, I think it obviously is having a bit of a renaissance and I think that would have happened no matter what. What is really interesting to me at the moment is Seven has obviously got back in the dating game with Farmer Wants a Wife, which is performing fairly well. It's, you know, not doing any better than The Bachelor is, but it's performing pretty well for a show that kind of disappeared off the air for a while. It's especially doing really well in regional audiences, which is what Seven said they hoped it would do. It's already been renewed for a second season. Um, And I think what's going to be really interesting to watch is we're coming into upfronts now. And last year there was all that talk of everyone was consistent except for Seven who were going to be consistent. Of course, they also had the Olympics to lean on them. They, they do say that year in and year out. They make that promise consistently. <laughs> and then sometimes they apologise for not keeping the promise. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think at the moment, without the Olympics as that big different factor, we're seeing them all kind of say the exact same thing. They're all saying, hey, we're consistent. We're performing in the key demographics. We're performing in 7.30. We're performing to younger audiences. They can't all actually be doing it, though. And I think what's going to be very interesting is come up front season, how we start to see the data being used, where they choose to draw that line for the shows that are really performing well and the shows that are really doing well in the kind of those <laughs> consistent key areas. Um, yeah, it's going to be a very interesting one because it's been an interesting year, I think, in ratings. And I don't think before this year we could have really predicted that. To weigh in on the should MasterChef have run when it did argument, I think knowing what we know now, if you're 10, you still make the same decision because MasterChef did so well, it had so much more to prove than The Bachelor Season 8 did or does. It had a new lineup of judges. And in terms of, you know, serendipitous timing in the circumstances that we're in, it really fell into a sweet spot of we weren't so kind of bored and worn down by lockdown conditions when we weren't in a second wave of lockdown for Victoria and people were still in the, great, I've got this newfound time on my hands, how can I best use that? And so many were turning to cooking that it felt like 
those things combined really worked for it. I would say that we kind of in Slack guessed what the Masked Singer numbers and the Bachelor numbers would be and the actual result was kind of well short of where our predictions were. So We're always wrong. We're always either yeah. too high or too low. We never get we it right. We are not consistent. How, <laughs> how surprising that we don't pick the exact right number like jelly beans in a jar. But, yeah, I mean, look, the Masked Singer and Bachelor definitely did worse than what I was anticipating it would. But still, it's hard to tell how much is format fatigue. For The Masked Singer, I definitely thought it would be higher. But I think seeing just how strongly MasterChef performed, you have to stand by that. Yeah, like I have thought about it a lot in the last two weeks, like as Paradise was wrapping up and we went into this week. And that's why like, I've been flip-flopping on the issue because Brit's right, like, the attitudes that people have had during lockdown really, like, I think will have affected the way people perceive the shows. I mean, Viv last week when she was talking to Osha was saying it was weird to watch Bachelor in Paradise with all these people touching each other. But that was a very short run, whereas when we were in peak lockdown, MasterChef was on and there's far less, you know, touching, there's a lot more social distancing the episodes that were shot when social distancing began went to air in May, so it was still kind of relevant. And it's there was less of a disconnect to the audience because you weren't watching people have so much close contact with one another while you're all separated at home from your loved ones. Next, are we talking to the new global boss of DDB? It's been three weeks since Marty O'Halloran was uh, named as the new global CEO of creative agency DDB Worldwide. He's already known in the industry here, running DDB across Australia and New Zealand. He joins us now. Marty, thanks for joining us. How's the in-tray looking? It's been uh, pretty hectic. Uh, I've uh, I've still got actually my old uh, Australia-New Zealand email address, and so now I've got my new New York, New York one, and the, the the flow of email traffic is extraordinary. But um, I'm managing it pretty well, actually. Uh, the first week was lots of congratulations, and uh, it was great. Actually, the whole network was very excited about me being put into this role. But um, then week two come all the challenges and the requests and the uh, the problems, and do you have the vision that's going to turn DDB around? And so the reality of the role has hit. Um, Hit very quickly, but uh, that's a good thing. Well, I was going to come to that later, but it's a good moment to go there now then. Do you have the vision that's needed to turn DDB around? And does it in fact need turning around? Yeah, I think um, uh, we have pockets of uh, amazing success uh, at DDB. And I, I do include Australia and New Zealand in that. And uh, But you look at London, you look at Paris, uh, and uh, quite a few of our uh, Latin American agencies but, but by and large, there's a lot of transformation needed across the network and uh, that for, there is a job to be done. And uh, I've got a really clear vision in terms of what we need to, need to do and how we unlock growth for DDB. And, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of that's born out of what we've done in Australia and New Zealand um, uh, and the consistent success we've delivered in those markets. So, 
while that's relevant, there'll be some other new things I'm working on as well uh, to really sort of propel the global business forward. So there must be a lot to think about when you agree to take on a big role like this. Um, I mean, my first thoughts, other than to be very happy for you when I heard the news, was um, was I kind of went to Bill Burnback, the, the B of DDB, um, and I was kind of thinking along with David Ogilvy, maybe Leo Burnett, he was one of the fathers of the modern advertising world. Now, given that he died back in 1982, you joined the organisation, I think, in 1986, you wouldn't even have met him. But now you're in charge of continuing his legacy. How does that sit with you? Well, look, it's, it, it is incredible when you look at some of the uh, thought leadership that came out of Bill Burnback uh, during his time. And a lot of it was all about human behaviour and the fact that humans are emotional, they react on uh, feelings, and it's how you tap into that. And while the world has dramatically changed, uh, you know, into to- in today's world, it- it's amazing how so many of his quotes and his thinking is so relevant to what we're doing going forward. Obviously. The, uh, the ways we can communicate uh, changed and the technology and the data available. But for me, our, uh, our opportunities, how we use some of that thinking in terms of connecting with uh, humanity, uh, how, how we leverage some of uh, today's tools to help us um, uh, uh, deliver that. I think one of the, the quotes I like from him is, research is the enemy of creativity. How do you feel about that one? Well, I, look, I, I know what he was referring to there in terms of, uh, you know, some creative ideas, uh, research uh, will kill them because, you know, that's an idea being researched before it's actually been made. But um, I, think, I think our view in today's world is research done well is the friend of creativity because it can help you unlock um, uh the way to actually communicate and give you confidence that uh, you're, you're, you're really going to connect and create those feelings that will get people to actually go and buy a product. So, uh, and actually I was, I, was, um, I was on a call this morning in terms of talking about um, uh, emotional advantage, which is one of the things that we, uh, we really believe in terms of what we can deliver for, for clients and you know we've we've worked really successfully with a UK uh, research uh, agency called Brain Juicer, and for me that's a great example where research can help pre-test ideas to to give us and also our our clients the confidence that it's going to work. So um, I'm a big fan of research. Look, and I uh, another thing he was he, he with Bill Burnback was well known for was commitment to his family. Famously, he never stayed in the office after 5 p.m., never took work home at the weekends. Um, is it possible to live that way now in the agency world? Well, it's, it's funny. Um, it's one thing my wife was actually saying to someone the other day that, um, you know, consistently through my career, uh, while I do start early, I, I do always try to be home uh, to have dinner with the family. And it's something that I do encourage with uh, all of the people that work at DDB. And uh, it, obviously there's times where we have to do the late nights and the weekends when it's a big presentation or a pitch. But um, 
really just getting that balance, uh, work-life balance right. Bill Burnback was onto something there because um, I think you get more out of people long-term if you don't burn them out. And I think too many agencies in today's world are burning people out because of the the, the, the way we're working. It's not necessarily the workload. It's how we actually manage the process and our people uh, to deliver the sort of um, creative that we need. So I'm, I'm – and I look at uh, you know uh, Auckland, for example, where 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 I am at the moment. It's pretty rare that people are working uh, you know beyond seven o'clock at night, and very rare on the weekends. And that that is one of our highest performing agencies in the network. So it's all about it comes back to the leaders and how we how we manage the business. Well, we'll turn to the global market in a moment. Firstly, as you allude to there, you you, you look after both New Zealand and Australia. Um, how do you actually see the state of, of, of the local market at the moment? I, I, and I guess particularly Australia, you know, sort of beyond DDB, what, what do you see when you look out across Australia? Well, I think, um, you know, obviously uh, we're, we're living through a time that's uh, incredibly challenging for the industry and, you um, you know, we, we've we've seen some uh, uh, some people unfortunately uh, leave the business because of the the uh, pressures that clients are under. But um, you know, I think it's been really interesting just watching uh, how the different holding companies are operating in the marketplace, uh, and also you know how some of the independent uh, agencies are, are performing as well. And uh, you know what I what I really love about DDB is we you know where Omnicom is very supportive of our creative agency brands and our media brands and uh, I think that's part of our success in terms of we're really focused about what we're trying to do with our brands uh, where I think some of the other uh, holding companies are uh, I think with the right intention trying to bring uh, skill sets together but perhaps confusing what the brand, the people are working for, is really all about, and uh, what our strategy um, uh, from a DDB point of view has, obviously, to build other capabilities under the DDB brand, and obviously we have other agencies that sort of sit in that group, but uh, you know they're uh, independent and focused on uh, what they're there to deliver, but also they they come together with uh, the, the the DDB advertising side of the brand to deliver what clients need from an integrated point of view so uh, you know I, I think it's always really healthy to see uh startups and independent agencies because it, it number one i think it makes people like me really focus and make sure that we're delivering what we need um and you know for me that's part of the health of the future of the industry as well because the reality is those agencies that do well uh become targets for people like me to go and buy them and um so, so again, it's a. I think that's a nice cycle that, that you know happens in uh, in in normal times, but I think it may be accelerated um, uh, when we're um, going through a bit of economic um, uh, pressure. And for uh, DDB in Australia and New Zealand, uh, a few sort of perceptions you know I picked up in the market. You know, one is there there, there, there seems a, a fair bit of agreement in the market that. DDB is doing very well in Australia and New Zealand. You know, it's it's been well run. People are very respectful of the the, the creative output. Um, and I think many of the people who say that also had the perception that um, that as you were to them spending more and more time in New Zealand, um, perhaps you were gearing down rather than gearing up. 
So I think there was the there, there was a bit of surprise in the market when um, suddenly you took on this big, challenging global role that will obviously, in time, see you move to New York. So, so I'm wondering, was this part of the career plan all along? Uh, no, and um, my my attitude uh, and my focus over the last five years, in particular has been to be the, the the mentor and the guide for the future of DDB across Australia and New Zealand. So I, I, I like everyone's, you know, I've got a healthy ego, but, you know, I, I, I didn't feel the need to be in the press all the time. Uh, I was happier to see my leaders like uh, Andrew Little or um, Justin Moday, for example, or um, Ben Welsh, uh, you know, I want to. I, I wanted to see them uh, in the media and 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 the market feel that they're the ones that are leading the future of DDB. So uh, again, that's just the philosophy I've got. I often sort of call myself the coach, uh, and I'm there behind the scenes and uh, very connected with a lot of our clients and uh, really the architect of the uh, of the future of the business and. Uh, you know, I have over the last couple of years been doing a lot of work with the global business uh, as part of the global management team. So again, uh, really a lot of my time has been focused on the global thinking for DDB uh, and also letting, you know, letting those other managers uh, fly as well with um, some guidance and mentoring coming from me. So your your predecessor, Wendy Clark, had a relatively short tenure. I think it would have been about four years or so, which isn't a very long time for a, a CEO. Um, in terms of what you're inheriting, is there an evolution on the cards or a revolution? Yeah, I would um, I would say it's an evolution. Uh, in some markets, it'll feel more like a revolution. Uh you know, where we have agencies that are, you know, traditional brand advertising businesses, uh, it's going to feel like a revolution to them. Uh, if I look at uh, uh, DDB across Australia and New Zealand, almost half of our employees now are data, uh, digital, experiential um, uh, with in terms of their skill sets. And in some of the other markets, it's still 80 to 90% traditional brand advertising. So, Again, part of the uh, well, the real opportunity in in markets like North America, for example, is is to uh, really step change how we use data and technology, uh, along with the traditional brand building um, uh, tools that we've got, uh, and and yeah, that, that's going to feel like a revolution. And uh, already the uh, the first hire I've made in North America to run uh, that business comes from a a data and digital background. Uh, he's um, actually come out of the uh, the RAP network and the Precision Marketing Group out of uh, Omnicom. So, again, I'm sending a very strong signal to the uh, North American team that uh, that, that we're, we're going to be transforming and changing in that market. So, uh, whereas... Uh, Australia, New Zealand. It's a it's a evolution of uh, the great work we've already done, but uh, we're always restless and always pushing uh, to uh, you know make sure we deliver what clients really want. And uh, you know, and I find myself regularly, and, and this is what I love. You know, it's it's about hiring people that are much better and smarter than I am, and uh, uh, and I'm getting many requests in terms of. 
specialists when it comes to uh, data and uh, technology. Uh, and I really rely on my managers around me and uh, their passion to add new skill sets. And uh, I love backing them because they know they have to have a good business case when they come to me, but uh, I will back uh, you know expansion of our services that, number one, we obviously want to grow our revenues, but also we want to make sure we're delivering what our clients really need. And something I again I found myself thinking about because obviously it's it's still relatively rare for someone from this part of the world to step up to a to a global role. One of the the other examples I thought of was uh, Henry Tager, who took over at IPG Media Brands as a as a global role after having done it in Australia. And I a few years back I remember interviewing him in New York at uh, the Advertising Week conference and just sort of talking about sort of you know. Clearly, you're 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 a New Zealander rather than Australian, but um, sort of people coming from this part of the world and going to New York and making their mark. And um, I remember one of the observations Henry made at the time was sometimes people take the plain spokenness of Australians as I think he used the word rudeness, but sort of it, it certainly felt that one of the challenges he faced was taking people with him. Um, so I guess that question is how do you how do you go fast enough but take everyone with you when you're coming into a new environment? You know, what are what are what are the lessons there? What do you think about in that approach? Well, I think I think you know, my view you know, I've dealt with uh international markets a lot over my career and you know, I've been at DDB for thirty four years, so uh I, I know the network well and I know a lot of the people. Um, number one, they were really pleased uh, that someone from DDB has taken over this role rather than someone from outside, someone who understands the culture. Uh, they, from my experience, they love the fact that we're straightforward and we've got a point of view. And uh, especially from my point of view, I'm not a political person. What you see is what you get. Uh, there's... Um, not a lot of uh, uh, bullshit that comes when uh, uh, when I'm talking to people, and and, and they like that. Uh, but having said that, for me, it, what's really important, and you know, I've spent a lot of time uh, of my first few weeks just connecting and listening to people from all the different markets, and uh, you know, uh, I've got to think about what the Spanish think, what the French think, what the you know, people from our London office versus the US versus Brazil. So, you know, all those cultures are quite different. And um, I think understanding the cultural nuances is important, uh, but also being really clear about what the formula is to create a great agency in today's world. That's the one thing that is is relatively common. And our challenge is to... Uh, give our agencies the belief that they can, uh, you know, deliver the global strategy but have the freedom to uh, do what's right from a local market point of view. I think one of the successes of DDB always, you know, we call ourselves a, quite a federalist network. You know, um, the term I use uh, a lot is uh, I want to find 100 burnbacks and each office has to have a burnback leading that agency with the the entrepreneurial spirit and freedom to do what's right in their market, but, you know, from a global framework, which is something that um, I need to provide for them. So, uh, again, that for me is much stronger than a central 
command and control type network where those abilities to do what you think is right in a local market get taken away from you. And um, obviously having, you know, operated in the Australian New Zealand market for many years, you'll have spotted a lot of talent amongst competitors as well as within that um, the DDB environment. Can you think of anyone you've identified in this market that you could see yourself tapping someone on the shoulder for a conversation about an international role now? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, and I, I think f- firstly within, you know, Australia and New Zealand, you know, I'll be able to open up opportunities for our, um, you know, the next generation of our talent, um, and that's important. Uh, I think also, you know, uh, already I've been uh, approached by a number of people uh in both Australia and New Zealand, uh, you know, making it really clear that they're open for opportunities uh, in the DDB network, um, you know, obviously once we can all travel. So, you know, the reality is people people that are trained up in Australia and New Zealand are, are highly valuable uh, because of the, 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 the skill sets. Uh, we tend to have a broader skill set and we get on and make things happen. And, uh, again, uh, People in the larger markets are obviously often staggered at how quickly we can get um, campaigns into market um, because of the nature of how we work. So I think there's there's huge opportunities for for people from our part of the world, and uh, you know I, I, I think the actually the thing that that really perhaps worries me more than anything through the the, the COVID challenges is that that sort of next generation of talent and. You know, naturally, a lot of agencies will stop hiring graduates, and you know the opportunities um, uh, will 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 not be there for a while for people to enter our industry. And we, you know, we've we saw that in the GFC, where I think the industry paid a bit of a price because there was a there was a gap of new talent that came in um, as people were recovering from that economic impact. So uh, that 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 is something that worries me. But at the end of the day, we uh, we have to open those opportunities when we can, but. Uh, also look for the you know one of the things for me that I, I really uh, I'm going to focus on a lot is when we're recruiting people really making sure that we're thinking about the future and we're hiring people that actually love the business but also have got the passion for the skill sets that we need going forward and you know while database strategy for example and analytics might uh, not sound too sexy to some people uh, those that do it love it so we've just got to make sure that we're getting the right sort of talent sort of coming through. Well, look, you just touched on COVID there. Um, as we're recording this, you're in Auckland and you've just very sadly gone back into lockdown again. Obviously, you've got big teams in Sydney, in, 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 in Melbourne, which is under lockdown. How do you manage your people during something like COVID? Well, look, uh, it... it and you've probably heard this from a few people. Like we were all, we're all astounded at how well we've actually performed, uh, and the ability to actually produce uh, a lot of great work for our clients through this period. Uh, you know, the, the full lockdowns become a real challenge when you it stops you from uh, producing uh, film uh, work in particular, or content in particular. But um, uh, the the importance of communication from the leaders uh, is just paramount through these times, and that's one thing that we've noticed. And we've we've spent a lot of time in terms of different levels of com- communication. Uh, from the research we've done with our staff, 
the the um, the segments that that we really have to look after are the um, the younger members uh, of our businesses because they're the ones that do need guidance. They do need to be feel part of working in a team, and you know, working being and being isolated from that team, uh, I think, is a real issue and. You can cope with it for a while, but when it goes on for weeks and weeks, uh, you know, it takes its toll. And um, we've had to support some of our people from a mental health point of view, for example, because, uh, you know, people, I think, start to get a bit depressed and lonely. Uh, so there's there's a lot we're doing, uh, again, having been through a few lockdowns and also looking at what's happening globally with some of the agencies that have had longer term lockdowns um that's something we're spending a lot of time on because uh you know the senior people tend to cope with it and and, uh just get on with things because they're a a bit more growing up and uh they ended up they have better homes uh to actually work out of whereas you know a lot of especially in the bigger cities a lot of our younger people live in quite crowded houses with lots of other young people trying to also work remotely so um it's pretty stressful so it's something that we all need to really focus on, both our client side and also on the agency side. But it's incredible how we've been able to use technology um, to our uh, mutual advantage and um, uh, and we continue to uh, get a lot better at it. Um, something else I'd be interested to chat about. Um, so the, the, the parent group is Omnicon. Um, you've also been a board member of Omnicon Media Group locally, which includes media agencies like OMD, PhD, more recently, Hearts and Science. Um, so that gives you a pretty good overview of the media side as well as the creative side of the world. Um, now, there is this widespread perception, which I agree with as well, that the holding company model is in decline. But I know that you argue otherwise. Uh, why is that? Well, no, uh, I think if you talk from an Australian New, uh, New Zealand point of view, uh where our combined revenues from an Omnicom point of view are increasing. Uh, and I think that's a, a couple of things. It's the way our agencies are collaborating and working together. Uh, you know, both uh, Cleminger and DDB partner really well with the uh, Omnicom Media Group and their agencies. And uh, I think I think what we're going to see, and we've seen some of this already, but I think we're going to see um, increasing consolidation as well where clients will be looking for models that actually bring the expertise that they need um, uh, together. And I think uh, the holding company strategy then becomes really important in terms of how you can, for example, get a a, a DDB and an OMD or or a PhD sort of working together. And, you know, part of my role is to work through any barriers that might sort of, you know, stop stop integration really working. And, uh, again, I've got a great working relationship with Peter Horgan, who runs OMG, and uh, we look at each opportunity and, and the best way to manage it, and how we how we uh, share the revenue, for example. And you know, we, 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 we again sort of lead the world on how we do that, and I think that's that's given us huge strength in both Australia and New Zealand. Um, and that's why you know through COVID, you know we're we're even seeing new business growth uh, happening in uh, both countries. I think because clients actually look at that holding company strength and want to buy it. Well, um, this is my my final question. Um, 
I, I joke, one of the things I've been doing during lockdown is, is finally catching up on all of the series of Mad Men. And one of the things about that is DDB is almost a character in itself it in is. that show. You know, the, uh, it's, it's a competitor to, uh, to, to Don Draper's agency, Sterling Cooper. Um, and there's, you know, there's a there's a scene where they're all pouring over lemon, which was the famous VW ad for the for the Beatles. You know, so you know there is this this heritage, particularly from the fifties, the sixties. Lemon, as I've talked about, uh, you know, we try harder from Avis. Um, so here's a here's a I suppose a contemporary question for you. Under your tenure in Australia and New Zealand. What single piece of work do you think you would choose to define that agency? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I talk a lot about uh, sort of long-term platforms that we build for clients, and I think we can all take uh, a single piece of work and go, wow, that's an amazing piece of uh, creative. And, you know, if I think about the work we did for um, – Foxtel for Game of Thrones. There was there was one wonderful piece of work called Grave of Thrones, and you know that that was a great one off idea. Um, and you know we we I applaud those. But then when I look at the work that we've done for say Westpac in terms of uh, creating a platform for that brand um, over a long period of time that that's working, that's the stuff I love. Uh, in uh, New Zealand, the work we do for Lotto, which is a long-term platform around imagination uh, in terms of imagine what you'll do when you win. And when I look at that, that platform's been going now for about eight years and uh, I think three or four times in the last five years we've been judged um, by the Global Lotteries Association, you know, uh, as as the country that produces the best creative now. Uh, and again, my definition of great creative is obviously creative that wins awards, but it's also creative that gets the results. And again, when I when I look at um, something like this Lotto uh, platform, it, it's delivering consistent growth. Uh, so for me, that's the that's that's the sort of balance. Uh, I, I also look at the body of work that we've produced for McDonald's in Australia, and. Um, you know, people are always quite surprised at how much of the marketing thinking uh, out of Australia is actually is is local. Uh, you know, there's very very few um, uh, bits of creative that we do that are imported from uh, the US, for example. So, you know, obviously, we'll look at the thinking there, but in terms of the commitment to long term brand building um, and also uh, long term brand platforms. You know, uh, we're known uh, as really one of the leading countries from a marketing point of view and an advertising point of view in the McDonald's world. So, again, when when I see the work we're doing being recognised globally um, by you know a, a great marketing organisation like McDonald's, that's 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 what I sort of get really excited about. And uh, you know, even even through challenging times, you know, the whole McDonald's system understand the need for the the balance between the long and the short. And you know, uh, as you've seen, there's been lots of thought leadership from the industry about uh, the long and the short of it. And uh, you know, McDonald's probably one of those businesses that's actually you know practicing the theory and getting the the results uh, at the same time. 
Well, you've made me think of one more question now, actually. Yes, talking about Burnett and Fields, the long and short of it. If you could recommend one book to read about the advertising world, what would it be? Uh, well, I think, again, there's whether it be a book or whether it be – there's so much great thought leadership that, again, I think the industry has been publishing, which is, you know, really understanding that the theory between, uh, you know, long-term emotional connection, which we call creating emotional advantage, but then also, uh, again, the way we're looking at it is uh, the short-term stuff uh, – it's got to. Uh, we look at that and say, well, that's got to be delivering emotion in context. And, and I think again, um, the the papers and the work from uh, Field and Burnett are, um, are just so spot on. And they're more than just theory. The fact they're using IPA data to actually prove that 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 this, this is more than theory. It actually works. I think that's the sort of stuff people should be reading because um, it. Uh, it, it, it is stuff that works and you know I, I know it's very easy for for people like me to say you know even in times of recession to keep investing in your long-term brand you know when you've got your CFO cutting your budgets but uh, you know the facts speak for themselves and um, uh, uh, again with its um, uh, uh, yeah, and again, Mark Richardson's another one who I think, uh, again, he, he's a, a great sort of thought leader for the industry in terms of what we need to be doing. Um, and uh, again, I think he, he shares that same view in terms of how, how you get that balance right. Well, Marty, thank you very much for your time and good luck in the new role. No worries. Thanks for your time too. And that's almost it for this week. Before we go... Hopefully you haven't missed the memo about Mumbrella 360. It's back, kind of, under its new name, Mumbrella 360 Reconnected. Part virtual, part on-site. It returns on November the 17th at the Four Seasons in Sydney. For those people who come along in person and for the rest of us watching on video, big names already confirmed on the bill, including some uh, big-name industry executives from companies like Microsoft, Grey Group, McDonald's, Junkie Media, McCann and DDB Australia. There's DDB again. Book your place early. There's so much more to come. Virtual tickets start from just $69. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash mumbrella360 for more information. That is it for this week, though. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. Toodle pip. Thank you.